Welcome to China in the Caribbean, a podcast exploring the growing economic and socio-cultural relations between China and the Caribbean region. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Dalal Waro. He is the former governor of the Central Bank of Barbados and a current member of the Financial Policy Council of the Bermuda Monetary Authority. Previously, he worked with the International Monetary Fund for over a decade across Europe, Asia, and Africa. We covered the origins and future of Sino-Caribbean relations. I hope you find our conversation enjoyable. Thank you, Dr. Warrell, for agreeing to have the discussion with me today. Thanks very much for the invitation. I want to start our discussion giving some context for the Caribbean. So the Caribbean, as I imagine it, includes all the insular Caribbean, all the islands, Cuba, the Hispaniola, which, is, which comprises Haiti and the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, the French islands, Martinique, Guadeloupe, the Dutch islands, Curacao, as well as the English islands. And also the littoral of Literal of South America uh, and Central America, where you find Belize, the Guyanas, and a number of islands, Margarita, and much of the coastal uh, cities of South America, Northern South America, Cartagena, for example, are very Caribbean cities. In Central America, you have towns that are on the Caribbean side of Nicaragua, for example, Bluefields, which are English-speaking. And even a city like uh, New Orleans in the, uh, the mouth of Mississippi, the south, southern United States, is a very Caribbean uh, city. So that's the Caribbean culturally defined. We share culture, we share a way of life, an attitude to life, uh, and we share much of the traditions and, and celebrations and so on that are thought of as typically Caribbean. But in a political sense, however, we are separated by our history into various linguistic groups which are largely defined by their relationships to originally European countries and also now to the United States. You grew up in Barbados at a time when Barbados was still a British colony. All the Caribbean was narrowly conceived even was probably called the West Indies at that time. And it was also controlled by various European powers in the 1960s. To set the groundwork for the later parts of this discussion, I want to start as far back as 1958. This was the first year of the short-lived West Indies Federation, which was essentially a self-sovereign federation of British colonies in the Caribbean, with one single political body of Caribbean persons. Looking back after all this time, Given the realities of small Caribbean states, how do you assess the tug of war between federation and independence? This, in 1958, this was a a time of the breakup of the empires of the European powers. And countries throughout the British Empire, for example, were achieving independence. Now, that means that, that in the Caribbean, the English-speaking countries 
were thought of as the entity that would become independent. The French-speaking countries were incorporated into the French Republic. And then, of course, you had uh, countries like Cuba, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic that were already independent. And you had Puerto Rico, which is part of the United States. And the notion was that the English-speaking entities would become a single independent state. And the first step to doing that was the formation of the West Indies Federation, which incorporated all the English-speaking islands and Belize, I believe. Guyana was not, was not a part of it. It lasted for four years and there was, it began to establish a, a permanent public service with parliament that was convened uh, in Trinidad. In 1962, the so there was a federal parliament and of course each of the countries maintained their own individual parliaments but none of them was independent okay they were all colonies under this umbrella uh, arrangement in 1962 the premier as as he then was of jamaica chose to hold a referendum on whether jamaica should remain in the federation and he narrowly lost that vote. And once that happened, then the entire system unraveled. I was a teenager at the time, and to all of us in high school, that was an awful tragedy. And I'm still convinced after all this time that it was a tragedy. Because if we had maintained the fabric of the West Indies Federation, what we would have now, which we do not have, is a permanent regional executive, public service which would cover the entire Caribbean in the same way as the Canadian Federal Public Service covers the whole of Canada, which has responsibilities for the execution of policy across the entire space. What we have instead now are individual country executives whose responsibility, I was going to say whose main responsibility, whose only responsibility really in a, a parliamentary system where the executive reports to a representative parliament. The only responsibility of the Barbados executive is to Barbados. So that the tensions that we have, and to Jamaica and Trinidad likewise, so the tensions we have within the region are inherent in any attempt to bring societies together especially if they're island societies. But if you have a federation, you have an executing body which has responsibility for the impact of policy across the entire region. What we have now is we do, we, we, we do not have so that 
the things that divide us take prominence in practical policy making over the necessities and the imperatives for joint action. Mm. The question of development finance was a key concern in the early days of newly independent states in the Caribbean. Uh, nation building was, of course, a priority. During that same time, early 1960s and 70s, the Caribbean was relatively a contested site in the Cold War. Cuba was castled to the north with deep relations with the Soviet Union, along with Grenada in the east with Bishop-led uh, Marxist overthrow of the government in that country, and Guyana in the south with Burnham building deep ties with Kim Il-sung and North Korea. Why is it that the Caribbean states were so willing to explore these, let's say, non-democratic forms of government? It seems that international persons now, say in 2020, just think it's a given that Caribbean states are so intimately aligned with the UK and the USA. Again, I think we have to put it in context. During the immediate aftermath of the Second World War and for all of the Cold War uh, period, the Western democracies were in a period of evolution. And so were all the new nations that were being, that were evolving. Our governance systems were not really, should not be thought of as aligning with this, this, with this, this America or, or with England or Canada or elsewhere. What we were looking for is a system of uh, a representative government which was suitable for our circumstances. It has to be said that the same thing was happening all around the world so that the, people don't realize it but the US systems of government governance have been evolving continuously, although I'm not sure. Evolution has a notion of progress, and I think that what has been happening in the United States has been a regression. But there changes have been taking place. Similarly, in the UK, we were always part of that change, and we were um, in a process of trying to find the systems of government that worked for us. Mm. So it was less a, an issue of aligning with one notion or another, as it was that we were exploring the possibilities of different systems of government. Along the same theme of nation building, you were part of the founding team that established the Central Bank of Barbados, the CBB, in 1973. Why did the government at that time think it was necessary to stop using the Eastern Caribbean currency and create its own domestic currency? So the establishment of the, of, of the central bank was actually not about currency at all. It was about government's ability to borrow. The proximate cause was the fact that the government of Barbados on independence started to issue uh, treasury bills. These were short-term borrowing instruments for to help the government to manage its cash flow. And without, as in the absence of a central bank, 
it had to depend on the willingness of the commercial banks to buy the treasury bills. Mr. Barrow saw the uh, merit, and I think this is probably just following the example of other countries within the Caribbean, of having a central bank which could not necessarily buy up all the treasury bills, but at least make a market so that the commercial banks would have to compete against the central bank for the return to in terms of the returns that they could obtain from treasury bills so i think that more than anything else was the motivation for the establishment of the central bank beyond the monetary aspects of the central bank of barbados to me the central bank is a very unique is that it plays a very leading social role in the country perhaps you could explain why sir courtney blackman who was the first governor of the Central Bank of Barbados, positioned it in this way. Sir Courtney, to his credit, was, he came from a business background and he was uh, a follower of a tradition which is now reasserting itself uh, in the business community, which insists that all companies, whether they're public companies or private companies, have equal responsibility to all the stakeholders. It is a concept which has, I think, been perverted by the sort of uh, notion which is which gained currency until very recently of corporate responsibility only to shareholders. So the notion of stakeholders says that any institution has a responsibility not just to the people who consume its services, but also to its staff and to its community, the community in which it operates, to the environment, and to, in the case of a public institution, to the building of all aspects of the society and the community. And Sir Courtney so Courtney's idea of the central bank is that as the premier institution in the public sector, it should set an example in all aspects of uh, public life and service to the community, which included in the economic sphere, not just money, but development of the economy more generally. And beyond that, contributions to its immediate community, to the welfare and well-being of the persons and the businesses and the institutions like the cathedral in the immediate neighborhood of, of the central bank, as well as to providing facilities like the Frank Calamar Hall, which were meant to contribute to the cultural enrichment of the society. We have now a newly independent country seeking new ways of nation building with problems of finance and a central bank that has a very broad focus on economic growth. And now we're into the late 70s when Barbados, under the Tom Adams administration, established formal relations with the PRC. And only a few short days later, 1980, was the first time a Barbados government had an official visit to the PRC. I believe Prime Minister Adams 
met with Deng Xiaoping at the time. But then, in that same year, you also visited China for the first time. Could you explain the circumstances of that trip and your perception of China as it was in 1980? So I arrived in China to find a society which was still the inheritance of the rigid form of communism which they have just abandoned, but which was already positively engaging with forms of economic ideas and form and policies and so on with which I was very familiar. But the but the, the main impression that the trip made on me was to make me realize that my concept of the world was skewed. Mm. Even though I knew uh, intellectually that China's population was the largest in the world and so on. The, 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 until I went to China, I didn't appreciate that the cultural space in which I operated and the notions of history and my place in the world and how the world operated and so on, that all of those notions were, in a sense, uh, notions of a minority of the world's population. So there is a statistic that I read in, this is about, it has to be a, about two decades ago in National Geographic, that the, the, the modal person in, on the face of the earth is a male Han Chinese. Now, that fact impressed itself on my uh, consciousness in a very profound way uh, through my visit to China. So there was all the exotic excitement and so on that one would have expected. But I think that was the most important and most defining uh, thing that I derived uh, from that first visit to China. Do you remember why Prime Minister Adams decided at that time to establish relations PRC? I think it was in pursuit of the policies that our first Prime Minister did, that we should engage in the widest possible range of options in terms of our relationships. You must remember that even though we were members of the Commonwealth and there were you know, ongoing relationships with Canada and the United States were a fact of life, these were never without conflict and, and tension and so on. And there was always a sense that we were being exploited by our traditional partners and therefore it was in our interest to widen those partnerships as much as possible. You mentioned uh, First Prime Minister B. Errol Barrow of Barbados. He, I think probably his most famous line still is his 
UN speech from 1966 where he said Barbados will, will be friends of all and satellites of none, I believe. Absolutely. And that was a pithy summation of what was then a common sentiment, not just in the Caribbean, but in almost all what we, what we now refer to as third world countries. So this was sort of things like South cooperation, for example. These are notions which are not new. These are notions that go back uh, to that era. The one China policy has been a contested topic since the Shanghai communique in 1972. Uh, right now, Taiwan is recognized by 15 states. Five of those states are in the Caribbean. Meaning that although the Caribbean has mostly faded from the geopolitical scene, on this matter it is vitally important. Why do you think that some states in the Caribbean chose to recognize Taiwan and why continue to do so now? As I've written recently to argue that all countries in the world have benefited immensely from the productivity of mainland China and the countries that recognize Taiwan I'm sure consume as a larger proportion of goods made in mainland China as does the rest of the Caribbean and the rest of the world and that's the main benefit that they get from Chinese productivity in contrast to that because Taiwan is so small the benefit that they get from the products made in Taiwan is minuscule. Whether or not they recognize the People's Republic as China, they benefit mainly from the relationships which are mainly indirect with the People's Republic. Continuing to maintain ties with Taiwan really is just a reflection of poor leadership. Washington has consistently accused China of exploiting Caribbean states or small states around the world through Belt and Road projects. They warned Caribbean states that taking money from China would lead to some kind of bad outcome of one way or the other. What do you think about the claims of these Chinese exploitation in the Caribbean? Like so many popular notions about Chinese policy, that those are entirely without foundation. And it is not difficult to demonstrate that. There's actually, I came across an article quite recently with the title of The Myth of Debt Trap Diplomacy and the Realities of Chinese Development Financing. And there are several other articles which actually take the trouble to examine the facts. And there's no substance to any of those notions. It is actually, and, and, and it's quite easy to demonstrate that, that there is no such uh, substance. I think the, to the extent that there have been difficulties with Chinese projects in Barbados and elsewhere, the failure has been in terms of the capacity of, on the Barbadian side to hold up its end of the bargain. What do you mean by that? That... The Chinese are business people, uh, just like 
the Americans and everybody else and the Germans and everybody else. And they will, you, they will insist that you sign contracts and there will be stipulations in those contracts with respect to legal processes and indemnities, etc. And those are the things that have been the stumbling blocks in my experience with the projects uh, that I am familiar with. Hmm. What do you think, if anything, Sir Arthur Lewis would think about the BRI projects in developing states? I can't see why he would not approve of them because Chinese development policy has been very influenced by the thinking of Sir Arthur. And the Belt and Road Initiative is just, as I see it, is simply a continuation, a natural outgrowth of the success of Chinese domestic economic development. So Chinese exports as offer better value for money than the competition. That's why they have been so successful. The result of that is that China has enormous surpluses of funding. You're getting more foreign exchange coming in than you are able to spend in the imports. So you have funds to invest. Substantial amounts of that used to, was, was being invested in real estate all over North America and UK and so on. But it still wasn't enough. And it is natural that you should have something like the Belt and Road. And it is entirely beneficial both to China and to the recipients. So the Chinese get to diversify their sources of overseas investment. And the recipient countries get financing for commercial ventures, infrastructure, other essential projects. Just to continue on this line for slightly longer, I, I don't really hear much discussion about Arthur Lewis or his ideas in general economic discussions anymore. Why is it you think that many of the developmental ideas that Sir Arthur Lewis was so famous for have seemed to almost fall out of fashion? Yeah, no, I think they're, they're, they're going to come back. And I think that the experiences of the Far East and the interest that China has shown in those ideas will help in that direction. But I also think that the West uh, and Western intellectuals are blinded to a similar phenomenon happening throughout in our part of the world, and in fact, a, a global phenomenon, because we think in terms of national economies. But in fact, the excess supply of labor is, a cause, is what is causing international flows. In 2015, while you were governor of the Central Bank of Barbados, a new cultural event was launched called the Fish and Dragon Festival. What was the impetus for that? I think by then it had become clear that, to me at least, that China had reached the stage of global or the global scene that we needed to intensify our knowledge and understanding of China and the Chinese. And I was aware of the fact that Barbadians really 
were and are woefully unaware really of, of China. Very few Barbadians have had the epiphany that I had in 1980 when I first went to China and which I'm sure that yourself and everybody else who has traveled to the Far East has had. And that was really the the genesis of the interest. The actual festival began with, or, or rather I should say, the central bank's involvement uh, with or re-engagement with China began with a visit by a Chinese economist, Chen Siwei, when the Chinese ambassador in Barbados at the time asked if I would host an event for him to meet with economists in Barbados, and I was happy to do that. And out of that, then, we began, you know, to establish a relationship with the embassy. And I'm not sure who, where the notion for the festival first arose, but I know that when I put it to my communications team headed by uh, Noveline Brewster, uh, everybody was very enthusiastic about it. Uh, so everything came together in a propitious start for the new festival. In 2019, you, along with the former Barbados Ambassador China, you formed the Association of Barbados China Friendship. Why did you personally take on this task? Uh, this is, I am, I'm, this, I think this is the most important thing that I'm engaged in right now. I think there's an urgent need to sensitize Caribbean people, Barbadians and Caribbean people about the realities of modern China and to help them to get to know actual, real, living, breathing Chinese and to the extent, the greatest extent as is possible to expose them to daily life in China. And this is especially urgent because there are so few avenues where people in this part of the world can get a realistic picture of modern China. It's a sad uh, situation, but the entire uh, media establishment in the West is unhelpful because they themselves have very little exposure to China, absolutely no understanding of China. And so they operate from an inherent Sinophobic basis. There's no other way to put that. And there are very few facts about modern China that uh, come to the Barbadian and the Caribbean population in the course of their normal news and, 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 and social media and so on. That, I think, needs to be rectified. And the best way to rectify that is through an association that focuses on building personal bridges and building relationships, on helping people 
to meet if only through the stories that they see and the videos that they see and so on to meet real Chinese in their day-to-day -day activities. I see the ABCF as complementing those efforts by creating similar levels of understanding the level of the common people, so to speak. What would you recommend listeners to read about the Caribbean economy? So on the economy, probably the most comprehensive place to start is a book which is about to be published. It's called The Handbook of Caribbean Economies. And it's edited by Robert Looney, L-W-N-E-Y. It was published by Rutledge. It was supposed to come out this month, but I think it has been delayed a few weeks by COVID. It will probably be out by the end of the year. Why I recommend it is that there are very few books that cover the entire Caribbean, including all the different languages and so on. And this one does that. The other recommendation that I would make is a book called The Economic History of the Caribbean Since the Napoleonic Wars. And it is written by the English economic economist and economic historian Victor Bulmer Thomas. I don't know if you've heard the name. B-U-L-M-E-R hyphen Thomas. And this is really very comprehensive and very data-driven. That is probably the most comprehensive political economy study of the entire Caribbean that has that exists really. I think I would recommend just for I think historical relevance probably the theory of economic growth by Sir Arthur Lewis. Of course that yeah that is a classic yeah. So thank you Dr. Worrell for speaking with me today I greatly enjoyed this conversation. Uh, so did I actually thanks for the opportunity. Mm -hmm.